Welcome to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. Always happy to have return engagements on the show. Brian Alexander, our guest today, is a senior scholar at Georgetown University. He's also the author of Universities on Fire. He's a higher ed futurist and someone I've really enjoyed engaging with over the years now. Brian, welcome back to Trending in Education. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you for hosting, Michael. Yeah, it's amazing to look back on our official appearances here, where you first appeared in February of 2020. Then we had you right back on in March of 2020, because your previous book, Academia Next, many things were noteworthy about it. But one of the things that got a little more attention is the fact that you were forecasting, exploring scenarios in which a pandemic might hit, and then what might be the impact to higher education. Similarly, now, you're doing that in Universities on Fire, where you are exploring futures. You are a higher ed futurist. Just to start, can you reacquaint folks with who you are and how you landed in this interesting position that you're in? Sure. I'm a futurist specializing in the future of higher education. And that means I do a lot of different things in order to help people in and around higher education think more creatively, more strategically about the future. One of the things I do is I write books, I write articles, I write chapters, I'm all over social media. I also create a weekly video on the Future Trends Forum, which is an online interactive discussion about the future of higher education. I also, depending on logistics, I travel and do consults and speeches to various people around the world. Finally, in October, I hit the last continent I haven't been to. The only one left over is Antarctica. And that's on my list. You know, I have to get there at some point. I do part of this at Georgetown University, where I'm a senior scholar, and they're very kind to allow me to teach a couple of classes in their learning design and technology program. Uh, I'm a recovering English professor, and I used to do a lot of work with a nonprofit working with small colleges and universities to help them grapple with emerging technologies and to do so in a collaborative way. Right now, I do all this research on the future of education full-time. Yeah, really interesting follow. Folks can find Brian, B-R-Y-A-N Alexander, and it's brianalexander.org. Great Twitter follow, LinkedIn, and the forums are certainly interesting. You're gathering folks on a regular basis to look specifically at higher, but then also looking more broadly at what's emerging, what trends are we seeing in that space. The one area that you're focused on, perhaps more so now than ever, is that of the climate crisis and how... Futures thinking can help people understand what may come of that, and then also how that may, in fact, impact our educational system, higher ed in particular. Can you describe a little bit how futures thinking works and how you might apply it to something like the climate crisis? Sure. Well, one of the things we do is we try to analyze trends. And a trend is just a force in the present that you can understand, that you can document, you can find evidence for. And we extrapolate that a bit into the future. You know, if this goes on, where might this take us? And there's a lot to it. You can feed that with a lot of data. There's a practice called horizon scanning, where you look for new information, new data about the trend. And then once you push into the future, you can modify it a few ways and play it out in different ways. That's where scenarios come from. The scenario is just a short story about the future. And often people build this scenario by using one trend and extrapolating it forward. So mm -hmm. one of my apparently least surprising scenarios that I created was one where I assumed that healthcare became the dominant economic engine in the United States. And all kinds of data fed into that, but basically the key thing was the growth of that sector. Mm -hmm. uh, so then exploring you know, what that would look like. In Universities on Fire, we focus on one, well, if you will, a mega trend, uh, global warming. Mm -hmm. And they try to trace out how that might impact higher education and what colleges and universities can do in response. I was 
trying to look at the future of higher education at a broad scale, uh, looking globally for the next 75 years. Mm-hmm. And as I was researching this, I found that in the futures field, climate change is considered a given. In fact, an essential. If you're not including climate change in one of your forecasts, you're probably making a mistake. That's mm-hmm. the wisdom. But I found that in higher education that we had really stopped talking about it very much. And it was mostly the province of a few people on a given campus. And the more I looked into it, the deeper and more complex the question was. And so I took the IPC data. This is the gold standard of climate data. Looked at some of their scenarios and their forecasts for where the climate crisis might go. Mm-hmm. Use that to build out some different directions where higher education could be headed. Yeah. One of the reasons I enjoy getting you on the show and futurists on the show is it gives me an excuse to talk about science fiction, which is something we have done in the past where frequently science fiction generates the types of scenarios that are useful as thought exercises, as ways of preparing your mind for what might be different in the future. Interestingly, one of your recent posts is about a series on Apple TV called Extrapolations, which I haven't watched yet, but you have hooked me and I will be pitching this to my wife shortly. But it is a subgenre, I guess, of science fiction is science fiction that looks at climate and looks at how this may play out in the future. I found your review both entertaining as media criticism, but also as something that wound up being instructive, I think, in terms of thinking about the climate crisis and how narrative may help in the conversation. Can you describe a little bit of just the power of science fiction, the power of narrative, and then how it relates to some of what you've seen in extrapolations and elsewhere? Sure. Humans are in many ways creatures of storytelling. From being small children on, we respond really well to narrative. And narrative can be abused. We can do too much of it, if you will, in in certain situations, but it's definitely a powerful force. Everything from how we watch movies, play computer games that have stories in them, to how we like politicians who can tell convincing stories. It's pretty close to a human universal. In terms of science fiction, I mean, science fiction is imaginative literature, trying to imagine, you know, what the world would be like if we changed it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Science fiction, depending on how you date it, it's about two centuries old, and it's a very, very powerful force in the world. It's often disdained. In my own field, English literature, where I was trained, there's a lot of snobbery about it, but it Mm -hmm. nevertheless remains very popular, at least at a consumer level, and gives us many, many visions of the future. I mean, not all science fiction is about the future. And not all, as we know, and not all future forecasts really come even close to reality. But it gives us a lot of tools for thinking. It gives us imagination and it lets us play out future possibilities. Real quick on that, if folks are curious, we'll include in a link in the show notes, our prior conversations where I believe you were talking about contagion. And this was a very timely conversation back then. Now shifting gears to more climate-related science yeah. fiction, also known as climate fiction, don't call it cli-fi. That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, climate fiction is an interesting field. This is the field of literature which examines the future of humanity under the impact of climate change. I would argue it's all science fiction. It's not often marketed that way or discussed that way, but I think it's pretty clear. And it's a current phenomenon. We have a lot of books, some movies, some computer games, some TV shows, some art for the past decade or 20 years. 
You can find antecedents going back a ways, and people have always written about nature, for example. In the 1960s, when the modern environmental movement took off, there was a lot of fiction about that, including some very powerful science fiction like Jake Ballard's Giant World or John Brunner's A Sheep Look Up. The Foundation series moved very much towards Gaia and some of those more eco-oriented themes uh -huh. towards its, its conclusion as well. Yeah, uh, David Brin has a novel called Earth, where Gaia actually kind of comes to life. So there's a tradition of that. And we could dive into some, you know, different examples. One of the ones that I find most rewarding is Kim Stanley Robinson's A Ministry for the Future, which is an optimistic look at how we might handle the climate crisis for the next 30 years. Mm. Very, very rich, interesting book. So then Apple TV just started out with extrapolations. And this is written by the same person who wrote the movie Contagion. If you haven't seen it, I strongly recommend it to all of your listeners. It's from about 2012 or so. And it's eerie to watch now just because of the way it anticipates a very COVID-like pandemic. Mm -hmm. The only thing that it gets seriously wrong is something that everybody got wrong. I cannot find anyone forecasting this, which was that it makes the CDC heroic and very competent. And the slapdash, shambolic practice of the CDC in the wake of COVID is yeah. anybody anticipated that. If only they had hired the right futurists prior right. to the pandemic, a lot of this could have been mitigated, perhaps? I think so. I think so. I mean, that's a serious benefit that futurists can bring. And so the same writer has come up with this new series called Extrapolations. And from what I can tell, only three episodes have come out. Extrapolations looks at the next generation or so. The first episodes have been in the 2030s and the 2040s. And the focus is on how climate change alters the world and humanity. First episode took us through a bunch of different characters running around in, I think, the year 2036. We saw characters trying to set up a casino in the North Pole, people trying to negotiate the next Congress, the parties, the COP agreements in Israel. We saw bushfires. We saw all kinds of problems. Then the second and third episodes each took a deep dive into one story with one anchor character. The second episode focused on a whale specialist, a cetologist, trying to preserve the life of what may be the world's last whale. Mm. Uh, third episode focuses on a rabbi in Miami. When Miami is being slowly subsumed, but steadily subsumed by the waves, its population is down to something like 800,000. Chunks of the city are just written off. Wow. And the second episode is very elegiac, very mournful. Mm. Uh, the episode is more crackling, comedy with a fierce ethical component to it. I think it's just more interesting as an effort to try to imagine what the climate crisis might do. Yeah, it's interesting the power of those numbers too, when you start leaping beyond the next, say, five to 10 years where, you know, we're kind of adjacent to the rest of the 2020s. When you start yeah. being less tethered to the here now and you start thinking 20, 30 years from now, what might things be like? The thing that I thought was interesting in your article is also talking about the relationship to the crisis and the implicit assumptions around what worked, what didn't work, and also the level of resignation to some extent yeah. that the characters have vis-a-vis -vis their ability to impact something like climate change. I thought that was interesting. Could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Again, we've only seen three episodes. That's all that's been released to the public so far. Critics, some reviewers have gotten a look at later episodes, but we're still waiting for those to be dribbled out. Uh, what surprised me was that there was no climate denial and there was no active attempt to mitigate the disaster. Instead, it was really a question of adaptation or trying to survive or trying to get what's good. 
One character says climate's going to really hurt people who are our grandchildren, but I'm not caring about them. I'm more interested in making money now. Or people who are trying to protect their homes and their valued property in Miami. It's, uh, it's a very human drama in that sense. It reminds me of a British show written by a Dr. Who writer called The Years, The Years, which mm. looked at the family over the next 20 years or so. And it's an interesting idea to just keep progressively pushing forward down the road. Mm. But there was definitely a sense of resignation in the extrapolation that's a great pan over future Miami. And you see that it's literally swamped. You see buildings that are physically decaying or windows gone. Uh, and you see big signs describing the fate of different chunks of it. And there's no sense of, okay, we'll quickly build a great seawall and protect it. There's definitely a sense of resignation. Yeah. And you connected that to Don't Look Up, which was on a kind of tighter timeline, but it was similar in that we may not be able to get out of our own way to address this crisis. And it does require perhaps more action than we're ready to take. And that maybe helps us shift a little bit into the conversation for higher education, which has been faced with all sorts of existential threats lately, so much so that long-term thinking may not necessarily be as much of a priority right now. And yet at the same time, the rising generations who are the lifeblood of higher education are very much stepping forward and saying, you can't ignore the crisis that is coming, that we're in the midst of with the environment. Any thoughts on, I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts, but where do you want to go with this? Well, I think you're absolutely right to mention this as a question of long-term thinking, but it's one that is deeply engaged in short-term as well. I I was looking at the city of Jakarta, which is no longer Indonesia's capital because Mm -hmm. Jakarta is on the sea level. And so they simply relocated the capital uh, inland to higher ground. You can think about uh, Miami, which now suffers daylight flooding, which means that when there's no storm, there's no rain, sky is perfectly clear. The city will sometimes flood because it's at sea level and it's also built on limestone, which has a lot of ways to hold and spread water. The Smithsonian Museum has already spoken about collections and sites that are in danger. A Mexican archive talked about having to relocate because the wet bulb temperature will be too great for it. So it's, I think it's a real challenge to think about that kind of span for connecting this month through the next 75 years. But we can do this, especially since humans are creatures of imagination. I believe we can hold that kind of scope in mind. And universities, colleges are really supposed to be thinking along those lines. We're trying to preserve the combined intellectual heritage of human civilization to advance that heritage of new research and discoveries, and then to pass it on through teaching. So we have to be thinking in a longer term framework while at the same time keeping an eye on what the short term means. And that can cut in a few different ways. I I talk about this in terms of something that's inflicted on campuses. And we have to think about that. We think about campuses that are on the edges of deserts, the American Southwest, for example, at least one Egyptian university is on the edge of the Sahara. And we have also to think about aridification where areas are drying out. Some people have summarized the climate crisis as saying it's going to mean too much precipitation in places that don't need it and not enough in those that do. So these are physical threats. And then there are other threats to, for example, infrastructure. What happens if you have a road or rail line, which leads to you and it's built in part on permafrost when the frost is no longer perma? What happens if, for example, there are other secondary effects as the climate heats up? We see changes in biology and in the environment. So what happens when new diseases move around or old diseases change location? There are all kinds of knock-on effects we have to think about. 
bites. That's all higher education is a kind of passive recipient. And that's going to happen. That's happening now. But there's also what higher education can do proactively on its own. The more I researched this book, as I started writing it, the deeper this got. And I broke things into two different domains to try and wrangle it. One is what happens to the physical campus. Yeah, I mentioned physical dangers, how we have to worry about that. But there's also things that we can do that are more positive. So thinking about, for example, resourcing our electrical power. Most campuses right now, I'll get that from offshore. They pay a single utility to provide power. We have to think about the sources of that utility and if we can change that. A Berea College in Kentucky, for example, recently purchased shares of a couple of hydropower stations nearby. Mm -hmm. uh, Source sustainably that way. Does it mean maybe having more solar power generation on campus or right nearby or wind turbines or geothermal or hydro nearby? It also means looking at our physical buildings, renovate them in order to make them carbon neutral or even carbon negative. Do we add carbon capture technology to campus? Could we uh, hook up anything to the gym? They're very active on the elliptical machines and whatnot. Can that generate power? I'm just brainstorming here. Yeah, it's not very efficient, but uh, in fact, you're talking about uh, climate fiction. We can think back to a classic film I recently rewatched that is even more powerful than I thought, which is Soylent Green. Mm. There's a bit where the two main characters are roommates and one of them is riding a, an exercise bike in order to power an electric light bulb. It's not very efficient, but we have that. Yeah. But as well about some of the other issues that we do that may be symbolic or just doing our part. For example, do we allow carbon-fueled cars on campus, or do we find them, or otherwise disincentivize them? Do we shift the food service offerings towards a more plant-based diet to try to reduce the emissions, both methane and carbon, created by a late meat-based diet? Do we transform lawns and cover them with solar cells, for example? Well, it's possible that we can see a campus that literally looks different in just a few years. And that's just the physical game. There's more to it. but. There's also our research enterprise. So much of what we know about climate science comes from academic research, from disciplines as far apart as chemistry and hydrology, earth science, obviously, meteorology, but also from the social sciences. We have people on poli-sci looking at what happens to nations and national sovereignty as the crisis unfolds. Yeah. Religion, trying to think about either the emergence of new religions or what happens to existing religions. So the current Pope, for example, issued a climate change cyclical. How important will that be? Scholars looking at Indian religions. What happens as Ganges River dries up? That river is a holy site. Displaced populations as well. This is possibly the most visible and some ways one of the most frightening, which is we're looking at tens of millions of climate refugees. Mm -hmm. Areas like Doha, where they actually air condition the outside. When does that become unlivable and people decide to up stakes? Look at a huge swath of sub-Saharan Africa. All the estimates I've seen are talking tens of millions, if not more mm -hmm. people. So in terms of research, how do we study this? In terms of our physical campuses, if our campuses are safe, do we provide housing for climate refugees? But if our campus is in a danger zone, if we're in, say, again, sub-Saharan Africa, or if we're along the Indian Ocean coastline of India and Bangladesh, if we're in the American Southeast and the Southwest, the most extreme temperatures, when does a campus think about redesigning itself to protect against these weathers or to relocate completely? Mm -hmm. And then the third domain for this comes up again with climate refugees. I'm really glad you asked, which is teaching. So if we have interdisciplinary work on climate change, we should probably have interdisciplinary teaching. So, you know, we do have ethics and climate change classes, for example. Psychology has been looking into what happens to the human mind during the climate crisis. There's this term called solastalgia which is this painful longing for the environment you grew up with that is no longer accessible to you. You know, do we teach this? 
And then how do we teach this? Do we have, I think project-based inquiry-based learning is a kind of no brainer in this respect, along with simulations and gaming. But what happens when you have students who on the one hand uh, are activists, they want us to take steps. How does that play out in classrooms? Do classes support them? Do they lead to more campus activism? But also what happens when we have students who are climate traumatized, they've experienced something like the Hurricane Katrina disaster, they're a climate refugee. How do we honor that experience and not re-traumatize the students? On top of all this, I'm talking about higher ed as a kind of island, but we of course interact with our local community. In America, we refer to this as town-gown relations. You have to think about ways that there are opportunities for collaboration. I'm thinking that a lot of civil engineering programs, for example, should have great opportunities to connect with local area in building solar cells or yeah. you know, building solar panels or setting up barrier walls or elevating buildings. And also opportunities for friction, you know, depending on the attitudes of the community and the academic community. Yeah, it's a lot. As you mentioned at the end there, the connections to the future of work. What fields of study will be most relevant if you are an environmental studies focus? What does that translate into? Same thing around environmental engineering. And then the flip side is really just about any field. How does it relate to the growing climate crisis? The one that I wanted to get your take on, because I know we've both been tracking, is the evolution of artificial intelligence and generative AI, that feels like a parallel megatrend. And I'm really curious how you're thinking about the interrelation and interaction between the climate crisis on one hand, and then this real revolution in terms of generative AI and really innovation powered by new artificial intelligence and machine learning. Well, we have already one great collision between the two megatrends, which is that the computing necessary to train a tool like GPT-4 or an image tool like DAL-E or stable diffusion is substantial. And that involves a lot of carbon, you know, having to buy up a lot of computational power in the cloud, which in turn means having to buy, you know, more servers. And so there's an interesting question. I've seen some people raise this as a topic. Do we get to the point where we say, stop? or cut that back or ration it some way, perhaps as a public good, because we think that's too dangerous. I mean, I'm I'm already expecting to see people try to prohibit Bitcoin mining. So mining rather than perfect stake generation, because this is very computationally intensive. We have to rethink our entire computational architecture this way. It's something that's really intensive in terms of GPU, CPU, and bandwidth, like virtual reality. Flip side of that, though, I'm so glad you mentioned this in terms of future work, is what if we take the travel problem seriously? Air travel gouts out huge amounts of CO2, and we don't have really good solutions on the horizon yet. There's a lot of work, NASA's doing some work, a lot of private companies are doing work, but it's nowhere near the electric car. We basically don't have an electric plane option. Some in climate fiction, people are very fond of turning to balloons and zeppelins, which sounds great, but we're not there at the consumer level yet. Miyazaki does really good work with balloons, you know, like the anime, when he does the future, the dirigibles make for nice escapist animation. Miyazaki is a genius and you can think of all kinds of ways for that to play out. We know the train and blimps take longer to travel. So do we change your idea of traveling between three cities in one day by air and instead get used to a slower appreciative pathway? That's a big shift. But if we do that, if instead we decide to take blimps, if we can get them or just to fly less. You know, there's an archive in Santa Fe or there's a conference in Burundi I need to get to. Well, instead we'll do it online. We know how to do that thanks to the pandemic. We have all kinds of technological options with synchronous and asynchronous. And uh, VR. 
Including VR, absolutely, and mixed reality. That's actually one of the features, by the way, of this Apple TV show extrapolations. Is there's a lot of VR and also holographic displays. Interesting. Uh, which are not just cool, but can also deepen the experience, potentially. So if we do that, then campuses need more computational power at, at all levels. I mean, they'll need more hardware, they'll need more bandwidth, they'll need right. software, they'll need human support as well at a very extensive level. So it's an open question about campus computing, which way it will go in terms of the climate crisis. Right. The climate crisis makes us rethink so much of higher education. I think that's one of the reasons why people hesitate to engage with it. There's a philosopher who came up with the term hyperobject. It's a complex idea, but it does what it says in its name. It's an object that's so complicated, it's really hard to wrap your arms around it. It penetrates so much of daily life. It's like systemic, right? The way people were talking about systemic racism. And if you go even beyond the human structures that are systemic, you start thinking about how we relate to technology in our environment. It's the fish and water problem. How do you change your water tank as a goldfish is an interesting question. And then the movement that I saw that made me think of you is sustainable AI, which uh -huh. is both uh -huh. where can AI, much like it's helping in medicine with protein folding, can some innovation happen there that might make energy consumption ultimately more sustainable? Same thing with quantum computing, you know, can that somehow right. reduce the processing power required or the amount of energy exerted to create the processing power needed for these new things? We tend to get dark, understandably, when we think about artificial intelligence, but there are also ways in which it perhaps could power some breakthroughs. Do you see anything that you think ultimately may be beneficial to our battle? I'm trying to change the narrative from that of resignation and adaptation to start thinking about, are there any somewhat utopian takes on how technology may be able to intervene and help here? There's a wide range and more coming. We know from the pandemic, that was the most recent proof of humans' innovative capacity. Everything from Operation Warp Speed, creating the vaccines in the U.S. and other countries as well. We know from higher education, flipping all up higher ed on a dime to push us online. I mean, we know there's a lot of innovation. The same is happening here. I'd recommend looking at something like the Drawdown Project, which gives you an example of a whole bunch of different ideas. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at things like, for example, the biggest is geoengineering. You know, do we do something like, do we put up mirrors or shades in Earth orbit or in the near Earth space in order to reduce the light coming in? Mm. Uh, do we alter the albedo of the Arctic, for example, or do we alter the chemistry of the oceans with iron? And these are all hugely controversial. There are all kinds of implications. If you want an interesting example of this from climate fiction, there's a recent novel by Neil Stevenson called The Termination Shock, which is about a Texas effort to create a massive geoengineering effort. There's also thinking about innovation across the energy field. We've already right now, the cost, the price of solar power is ridiculously low, far, far lower than it used to be. And it's already just a sensible decision to make to use that instead of oil and gas in many locations. We have changes in the engineering of all kinds of devices, including, say, wind turbines. We also have had this big development of electric cars, mm -hmm. uh, which do have issues, but those are really ticking off. Even electric bikes are taking off right now. Yeah. And then in terms of human reactions, I, I'm really struck by how much of the climate movement is oriented towards climate justice. The new IPCC report, which came out yesterday, strongly, strongly focused on addressing inequalities. For example, some of the countries that are suffering the worst from climate change are the ones which contributed the least to it. Small island nations like the Maldives. But you can also think about populations that are marginalized in different nations along different ways for ethnic, religious yeah. reasons. And the IPCC is very keen on making sure that we don't do that.
I mean, it may be that we head more towards a social justice oriented society, more interested in equity and distributing outcomes and distributing resources more fairly. AI gives us a lot of power from looking at and understanding climate crisis. I think, for example, about its predictive capacities, which are being used to model all these different changes, how it handles huge amounts of data. I mean, the computation involved can be just truly epic at this stage. Beyond that, we also have to rethink how that AI may change our entire economy in different ways. Do we, for example, find that some jobs are outmoded and we can't do them anymore because the uh, AI will take care of it for us? Think mm -hmm. about char, for example, or a lot of law work where you can automate a lot of contracts and you can automate a lot of legal writing and discovery. Or do we turn to the point where we don't make these jobs outmoded? Instead, what we do is we turn them into cyborg jobs. Yes. Uh, have to be working with a lot of AI. So if you're a lawyer, you've got to be used to working with ChatGPT version 12, which you can tell it to produce a contract or if you're a judge to produce a ruling according to certain parameters. Or, or Brian, if you're a futurist, it actually does a pretty good job of creating scenarios. It does. We've been talking about this in the futures world, and there are a few interesting different projects that do this. Do I ask ChatGPT version 26, please generate a scenario for the future for this field? If X, Y, and Z happen, and then I get that, and then I tweak it, I run with it. I say, this isn't good, I need to adjust it in some way. But also, uh, you're a podcaster. You have to work with spreadsheets. You have to work with audio software of all kinds. I just taught Audacity in my class. But do you have to do more of this? Do you, for example, have AI that is able to generate nice transitions in audio mm -hmm. uh, or that helps with the editing? You also can train up your own overdub and have your own synthetic voices. Nancy, my virtual co-host, sends her best, by the way. She could be in attendance today. But yeah, it is funny. And these tools are becoming much more widely accessible to everyone. Things that used to be only available in like an R1 higher ed research facility is now available in everybody's pocket. Where that plays forward in terms of futures thinking, clearly there's plenty of different directions we could go. We're getting closer to time. Brian, always amazing to have you on. We could clearly go on at length. But as we're coming towards conclusion here, first off, what's next? You just talked about the environment. I know you're kind of always moving forward. So I'd be curious if there's something new, some other areas that you're interested in digging into next, even though I know this one's right here. And then perhaps we could start getting into summation and closing thoughts. One issue that I'm, well, there's actually two things I've been working on. One is I've been trying appropriately from this event, I've been trying to figure out how to offer better webinars. And so I, I've been working on a book project about that, which I hope mm. to get out soon. Mm. Uh, and that, of course, is something which is just going to be increasingly uh, important, increasingly useful. And it, it combines all of these fields. It impl includes AI. So if we actually have Nancy as someone that we actually talk with live, as well as climate change, do we do more webinars than travel is what? Mm -hmm. The other is I'm looking at, I don't have a good name for this, Michael. I've been nicknaming the battles for the future, but I've been looking at two completely different ideas for the next two centuries and trying to figure out if we're going to have an expansionist very high tech, very developmentally intensive effort, kind of taking the past two centuries of the industrial revolution as a guideline and heading forward towards a kind of Star Trek future. Yeah. Uh, or do we do the reverse? Do we pause all of that and say, actually, we've done a lot of terrible stuff over the past two centuries. What we need to do is heal. We need to recover. We need mm. to redress problems. And some of these problems are so urgent that they will keep us from becoming an interstellar species. So I've been looking at that and trying to parse that out. When it comes to thinking about climate change, it's fascinating to see how we consider it because for some, we can think about it as a kind of technocratic problem. So we've got a lot of data, 
We can figure out just what needs to be done in terms of shuttling what kind of capital around, what kind of changes are necessary to our power production cycle and how long that takes. And we can actually cost this out and make this into a policy solution available problem and see that by the time we get to 2050, we'll have turned a corner and we'll have handled this. It's like dealing with most famously the ozone hole problem, which was detected in the 70s and which we basically addressed in the yeah. 1980s with the Montreal Protocol, which is amazing. So do we do that? Is that something which we just move on with? Much like right now, as we record this, we've decided to move on with COVID. COVID still kills a lot of people, but we accept that right now. Or do we see climate change as something that's deeper and more fundamental as a civilizational issue? Do we rethink our political economy? What does it mean to rethink everything from religion, race, gender, class as a result? I mean, are we just wading into a cultural revolution along the lines of, say, the French Revolution or the Industrial Revolution? I think that's, when I look at academics, those are the kind of different levels of thinking they're going to have to apply to this. Mm. Okay. Maybe in the first, the technocratic solution, I'll switch. I'll get an electric car. I'll shop with my cloth bag at the grocery store. I won't fly as much. Done. Or do we just rethink the fundamental purpose of civilization and what we're doing on earth? And we may do both. And societies may oscillate between these, depending on the current moment. I think that's the kind of depth of consideration we have to debate. Mm. And it, it might not be enough. Uh, it might be that people think that they can just move on. If a great city is destroyed, if we decide to abandon Georgia or the Indian coastline, right. that might be something that people just accept and move on with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you think about, say, the huge stockpile of nuclear weapons that we still have on Earth. Not a topic of everyday conversation. It hasn't changed anybody's life most of the time. We may just proceed that way with the climate crisis. So that's one of the things I think we should anticipate is an oscillation between those two different extremes. Yeah. And it's another place where the power of narrative and science fiction to describe yes. long-term impacts, because you can't really, you know, the creeping incrementalism of life, it's very difficult to notice how profound some of these things are. But if through uh -huh. these devices, including futures thinking, if you can start to open up your imagination and then ideally that starts to impact action that you take right here, right now. I'm very happy that we took the action to have Brian Alexander back on the show again. He's a senior scholar at Georgetown University, the author of Universities on Fire. Great follow, brianalexander.org. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Michael Palmer, what a pleasure. You're a great host. You ask great questions, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Awesome. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed this as much as I did. If you did, please subscribe. Share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.